Thanks for joining us today at BIB Today, the daily podcast from the newsroom of business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. The pandemic is by no means under control, but the easing of personal restrictions and business support programs, for that matter, is leading in the next few weeks to a resumption of work from offices and other businesses after, well, more than a year now of testing the viability of remote work. But, you know, there's still several questions there for uh, employees and employers about responsibilities and rights if workers are asked, even told, to come back to workplaces they left a year ago in March. We're going to get some answers to these questions today, I hope from Elizabeth Reed. She's a labor, employment, and human rights lawyer with the Faskin Law Firm here in Vancouver. She joins me now. Good to see you. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me today. Are, are you in your office or at home? I am in my office. Well, there you are. And, uh, you know, you're in your office, I'm in mine, and, uh, but I'm still, in a, I'm still trying to figure out the obligations of an employer and employee. So can we, can we start with you know, some of the longstanding rules of the road here uh, for, for work? And, and let's start with on the employer side, you know, what, uh, what rights are there? Sure. So um, every kind of company is going to have a little bit of a different situation um, just based on their kind of complement of the workforce, you know, who they got working for them, who are they working with, uh, and what kind of physical space do they have. Um, mm-hmm. But the general rules, you know, when, when we're looking at return to work is um, we've just recently moved from the COVID health and safety plans uh, into the communicable disease plans. Um, so there are obligations under, uh, you know, occupational health and safety law to have a communicable disease plan in place. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the scope of that is pretty broad, um, and you don't actually have to have it in writing or documented, uh, although I would recommend uh, that people you don't. don't. Uh, <laughs> no, you don't. no, there's, there's actually, you have to have a plan, uh, yeah. but you don't actually have to have it in writing, um, mm. although I would suggest that you probably want it in writing, it's a lot easier to prove that you have a plan <laughs> if you yeah. got something there yeah. in black and white. Yeah, I remember I told you six weeks ago, like, like I, that's, that doesn't sound like a very you know, very solid idea. Um, <laughs> Not very personal. So, no. so, so you have to have a plan. Um, wise to write it. Uh, what, what else do you have an obligation to do, though? It, the plan has to provide some safety, I presume. Yeah. So essentially, you, you've got to look at um, including in the plan. You know, how are you going to follow? Um, the kind of changing regulations and rules um, around COVID safety. So you've sort of got to figure out who's going to be in charge of, of watching for those updates um, and making sure that that your organization is complying. Um, you've got to figure out what kinds of things can you do within the organization to reduce the risk of communicable diseases. Um, and that's going to depend on your organization. So, you know, most organizations, it's going to involve you know, lots of hand sanitizer, um, you know, making washrooms available, making sure soap is supplied, uh, all of those kinds of classic things. Um, They are recommending during this sort of transition period, uh, you know, if you have barriers installed um, from your COVID safety plan, you know, why not leave those in for a little bit longer while we kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, get used to being back in the workplace. Um, And then you have to communicate the plan to your employees uh, uh, that are coming back to work so that they know how they're protected, um, what to do if they feel unsafe or they think, um, you know, there's something that they're uncomfortable with. Um, and then you've got to have sort of somebody to monitor the plan and make sure that it's it's being enforced and followed. 
So those are sort of the, the basic obligations. Yeah, those, that's pretty uh, well described. Uh, when you have um, employees, though, that maybe have some reluctance, some reticence, fear, you know, have anxiety about all of this, um, what are what are their obligations in all of this to still uh, bear some responsibility for how work gets returned? Well, essentially, um, in terms of their responsibilities, all of the employees also have an obligation to kind of participate in, in the workplace safety plan. So they've got responsibilities with respect to the other employees um, when they're coming in. Uh, and their other responsibility is, I mean, if, if they're asked to come in by their employer and it is a, a safe workplace, then they need to be coming in. Yeah. Um, now there's some practical concerns about that. Um, you know, I'm sure uh, you know most employers have realized there may be some morale issues associated with that, and and um, you know so you know technically your your legal rights uh, or your legal obligations and what actually happens in the workplace might end up being a bit different. But um, uh, they are expected to come back um, if there is a, a legitimate safety concern. Um, you know there is a whole process through WorkSafe BC to to raise concerns about unsafe work. Um, and then there's kind of a, a series that you go through that. But So is, is the onus on the employee to make the case that the workplace is, uh, by their standard, uh, unsafe? Or is that, or is it up to the employer to, uh, to you know, demonstrate that it's, that it is safe? I mean, who, who has the, who, who has the responsibility here? Sure. Um, I would describe it as a joint responsibility. Um, if the employee thinks the workplace is unsafe, then they have a responsibility to bring that forward to their employer and say, hey, I think this is unsafe and this is why. Um, mm -hmm. And then the first step in, in kind of the formalized practice is for them to have a conversation. So the employer then takes a look at what is the employee raised as the issue. Um, you know, takes those concerns into consideration. Uh, and then hopefully, you know, through some education or maybe some little tweaking, you can get to some kind of, um, you know, resolution. Uh, if there is no resolution, then the next step is you have to bring in, you know, a, an officer from WorkSafe BC um, to kind of look at, or, you know, depend, assuming you're BC regulated, um, then mm -hmm. uh, to look at the situation and decide whether whether this actually is an unsafe workplace or not. But when, I think the hope is... Yeah, sorry. The hope is that most people will be able to talk it out. Yeah. I mean, at, at some point, you're bound to see, though, some uh, irresolvable differences of opinion, right, in, in these types of things. So what what's the history here, Elizabeth, around how tribunals have dealt with these issues in terms of rights and uh, and, and what case law provides us in the way of guidance in in what I you know what I, I guess is not a truly unique situation but has some unique qualities to it here well I mean we have no case law dealing with a global pandemic um, so in terms of this gigantic return to work um, and and having everyone kind of coming back uh, you know we don't have a lot of guidance there uh, we're really going back to just sort of basic principles of you know what is kind of, um, you know, I mean, the general obligation uh, under occupational health and safety law is to uh, make sure that that employees are not exposed to, uh, you know, unnecessary hazards. So recognizing that you're never going to be able to, 
um, get rid of every hazard in a workplace. Um, but you have to take reasonable steps to protect your employees. And that's kind of, so we'll be going back to those kinds of basic principles. Are, are we going to see a glut of uh, tribunal cases and court cases, you think, in the next number of months and year or two in order to try to bring some greater definition to this? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, you know, we are already seeing a lot of uh, complaints to the Human Rights Tribunal about masking policies, um, yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, so I think some of those will continue. Um, again, I think a lot of it's going to go come down to communication. And, uh, you know, if you're, you know, there's always going to be a few outliers, but most of the time, if you've got a good communication plan with your employees, they understand what's going on. Um, that else starts to alleviate a lot of that fear that then can drive the complaints and the litigation. I'm glad I've got an expert here because I, the question that I get uh, asked myself a lot and, uh, and that I don't actually know the full answer to is, can I ask somebody if they've been vaccinated? Um, well, that is that is a question that we're getting a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So I think if you kind of go back to basics, when you're asking someone about their vaccination status, you're asking them for personal information and it's personal health information. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we forget that. Um, I mean, I've been throwing out my vaccination status all over the place and not thinking twice about it, but um, not everybody feels comfortable um, disclosing that kind of information. And technically it is, it is personal information covered by privacy legislation. Yeah. So you have to kind of look at, you know, essentially there are rules on um, collecting personal information, uh, using personal information and disclosing personal information. So if you're just, you know, you think of it as just, oh, I'm just asking for information, um, but that's collecting personal information under our, our privacy legislation. Mm -hmm. So you can do that um, as long as you're not collecting information that it goes kind of further than a reasonable person would think is necessary for the oh. purpose for which you are requesting it. Ah, okay. All right. Um, so, so I'm, I'm not, you know, an employer isn't doing it necessarily then to bring to the insurance company to say, you know, uh, you know, we want to break on this because all of our employees are, are double vaccinated or, uh, you know, we're going to need more coverage because, you know, so you're not sharing it, I guess is my point uh, somehow. Well, that, that all sort of, it gets into, um, uh, particularly with employees, and we'll talk about, we're sort of focused on employees today. Um, vaccination status is also, is going to be part of employee personal information because it's about the employees. And mm -hmm. you can, you have a little bit more, you have more rights as an employer with employee personal information. Mm -hmm. uh, as if you're using, uh, collecting or disclosing it for the purposes of managing um, either establishing, managing, or terminating uh, that employment relationship. Oh. So then you actually have the right to, to start doing things without people's consent. Because the big thing about with, in the privacy regime is if people consent to you, know, you collecting their information, um, either impliedly uh, or explicitly, you know, then, and, and, and assuming that you've explained why you're collecting it, how it's gonna be used, so it's informed consent. Um, then that sort of you know gets you to a, a good place where you're not going to get into too much trouble as an employer. Um, yeah, okay, that's that's good to know. Uh, uh, it, another question, I guess, that arises in this though is if it if it wasn't a clear condition of employment before that you be vaccinated against 
illnesses generally that, that might be communicable. Um, but now it might be, is that, is that a problem for employers? That is one of those spots that it has so many minefields uh, within it um, that it, it is quite risky to put in a mandatory vaccination policy. Um, and we do have in, in that kind of area some guidance from previous case law in, in the healthcare industry in particular. Um, and the kinds of things that there's sort of a few different categories of law that deal with, with mandatory vaccination. Um, the first is the common law of what we call constructive dismissal. Um, mm -hmm. So in the case that you've just described, you know, you've got someone, they've been working along, there is no requirement beforehand for them to be vaccinated, and you're imposing essentially a new requirement um, to their employment relationship. And, you know, we haven't seen any specific cases um, dealing with this exact issue yet, but the principles are, are it would be called constructive dismissal if the employer is unilaterally putting in place, you know, a term or condition that, that the employee hasn't agreed to, um, and that is a fundamental change. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of employment lawyers, you know, we're looking at this thinking, you know, asking someone to, you know, to undergo a health procedure um, that they may or may not wish to do, you know, that that is starting to get into that realm of, of that, that might not be on side. Mm, um, yeah. So, if, yeah, if you so, do that, so, you're looking at maybe yeah. dismissal. So walk carefully on this one, I guess. Yes. Uh, the, um, so some employers I, I've already seen in this community are, are telling their employees that in order to return to our office, you have to be double vaccinated, right? And so then it, it falls to the employee to say, well, uh, you're kind of, compelled into disclosure then, right? I mean, you, you know, you, you, or, or you're going to deceive an employer, which is not a good call. Um, and, and I wonder whether there's this kind of backdoor way of gaining this information that, that is a little uncomfortable um, from a ethical or legal standpoint around privacy invasion. Um, well, there's a couple of things going on in, in that particular kind of scenario, um, because if, I mean, if you're putting in, it's sort of a two-pronged thing, because if you're saying you have to be vaccinated before you come back to work, and that was never a requirement, you know, we've got these constructive dismissal issues there right now. You, you, you know, may be at risk of dismissing your employees by doing that um, mm -hmm. when you didn't mean to. And, and absolutely that, you know, if people refuse to come in, that, that is going to result in, in disclosure of their vaccination status. Yeah. Um, and that does raise all of those kinds of privacy issues. Uh, and that's when you'll have to go into that analysis of, you know, why are we requiring the double vaccination? Is that, you know, reasonable within this particular, you know, to manage this particular workplace? Um, and then the other thing that we sort of haven't touched on yet is the human rights component to that. Um, because there are going to be some people that are, you know, not able to be vaccinated either because they have underlying medical conditions um, or perhaps, you know, for religious reasons, there's, there's some kind of component of their religious practice that, that um, mm -hmm. would preclude vaccination. Uh, and then you've got to look at that um, as well, because there are rights to accommodation in those situations. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems as if we're still walking towards something that is going to be quite testy, given that health authorities seem to believe that we need somewhere between 80 to 90% of 
fully vaccinated populations before we're really going to control COVID. So, in, a, in effect, we're not going to reach that. We don't think we will. Um, we're going to be living with COVID indefinitely. So, um, again, back to the uh, back to the employer and employee uh, rights and responsibilities in this case. Um, do you think we're just moving into this territory, even legally, where we have to live with the ambiguity as opposed to some very clear definition about what we, you know, what can and cannot do. I think we are going to have to live with that a little bit. Um, and the other challenge is that it, it is so specific to the exact situation. So mm -hmm. somebody who has, for example, maybe an immunocompromised person in their workplace um, in a very small space where there's no ability to socially distance, you know, they might be in a very different scenario from a place where it's it's easy to work from home or people can do that uh, and it's not not difficult, um, or they just have a bigger office space. So you can put in other kinds of, of protections. Um, and I think that is one of the challenges is that, you know, you could probably write a 30 page memo on each workplace and what are the unique characteristics of, of that workplace and, and what you can probably do. And, and I think at this stage, we can only say probably, um, you know, based on those general principles. Um, and we'll learn more as, as the case law comes through and, and as we see the cases coming forward, um, you know, that will kind of help give some more guidance. Yeah, yeah. It, um... Then, then I guess, you know, in some cases, employers will have uh, the obvious option of accommodating uh, remote work a little bit more uh, indefinitely or, or maybe, you know, staggering shifts for people to come in. So they're really, you know, not, not necessarily uh, uh, without some kind of social distancing or some kind of security uh, for all of this. So again, back to um, where, uh, where the, the rights and responsibilities are in this case. Um, are we moving into now um, a bit more of a formalized era around remote work uh, than we have been where, you know, we kind of packed up our stuff very quickly and fled offices back, you know, a year ago, March. And here we are all this time later, you know, and we're still sitting on a kitchen chair, you know, with a, you know, a ragged laptop that, uh, you know, that, that's about ready to cack out. And, uh, you know, it, at some point, where does the employer then have these rights or pardon me, these responsibilities to, to start essentially structuring remote work a little bit more uh, professionally? I would recommend if people are anticipating that there is going to be a lot of remote work um, continuing in their offices, they do start to need to look at formalizing that with some remote work policies um, and mm -hmm. thinking about what remote work means in, in their organization. Um, because I think, you know, obviously, what, you know, when we all sort of fled the offices, basically, um, back in March, uh, you know, nobody was too worried about, you know, okay, how are we going to deal with occupational health and safety issues? Um, you know, what are we doing about privacy or confidentiality? It was just get everybody out and let's get everyone safe, uh, you know, and, and confined to their quarters, basically. Um, but now, you know, those things, uh, you know, we've been out for so much longer than anyone expected. And, and if remote work is continuing, um, then we do have to look at, at all of these kinds of issues. Um, and I think people often make an assumption that, oh, well, if you're working remotely, you know, the regular rules don't apply. Yeah, that, that's not the case at all um, for employers yeah. or employees. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. When it comes to employees, um, the other part of it, I guess, that we've certainly encountered during the pandemic has have been concerns about 
security of data and uh, and the fact that you know an employee might be using even personal equipment to do some uh, you know some corporate work uh, are, uh, again we, might we might be witness a little bit more of a formalization or a toughening of, uh, of requirements on employees to uh, you know to mind you know mind the, the gap here somewhat yes I think that does need to tighten up a lot um, because I would expect that right now you have an awful lot of employees you know, with an awful lot of confidential business and customer information you know sitting on their kitchen table <laughs> yeah. um, and so you can deal with those things you know through through policies now the question is going to be enforcement um, of course because it's it's you know you don't have access to everybody's house <laughs> to yeah. look at whether they're complying. Um, so there's going to be have to be a certain amount of trust there, I, I think, with the employee complement. Um, and there are some technology, you know, you can use technology to help kind of reduce the risks, yeah. those risks as well. But, the, but an employer doesn't uh, necessarily have a, a right to go and inspect your house, right, to see if you're, you know, is your, is your server a secure server, you know, have you got a password that, yeah, it, 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 there, there is a line that's drawn there, isn't there? Well, you know, we haven't we haven't seen that specific issue come up yet. Um, and practically speaking, how employers are, are going to be able to meet some of their their obligations as well um, when people are working from home, I think is a bit challenging. But essentially, you have to you're you're relying on the employee. I, I don't think we're going to get into a, a kind of a working environment where you have employers going into people's houses to, to do inspections. Um, but I would expect to see, you know, checklists that employees are um, signing off on that say things like, right. you know, I, I have an ergonomic workstation set up at my home. I have, you know, I have my password on. I am keeping things in a secure location, um, you know, all of those kinds of things. And then if it turns out if something goes wrong and the employer, you know, finds out that, okay, you know, you signed off on this, you represented to us that you were taking these steps and they haven't. You know that's obviously going to lead to to disciplinary measures of some sort. Yeah, it's been a great conversation, but I, I don't want to leave uh, without asking you if I, if I've missed something glaring here. You know what what's the what's the one thing that that most concerns you, Elizabeth, about this situation in the time ahead? Because we, because it is it everybody says it's going to be tougher to reopen than it did to close. Right? So that, that's bound to then have some consequences for the return to work? Um, I think, I don't know that it's the toughest thing, but this kind of thing that I find really interesting as a lawyer with the remote work is um, when people move jurisdictions. Because <laughs> one oh. of the things we're seeing now is that, you know, you're, if you're moving to that remote work kind of space, all of a sudden you don't have people just working from home in Vancouver. They want to work it from home in Sao Paulo or they want to work from home in Ontario because they want to go spend some time with their family or they want to work from Alberta. Um, and that is creating all kinds of you know, legal issues that are very interesting in terms of jurisdiction and you know, who has the authority and, and really the law has not caught up with remote work yet, I would say from a, from a jurisdictional perspective. Because different jurisdictions obviously have different standards. That's uh, right. Right. So, you know, some, you know, you might be moving to places where, quite honestly, you know, you, you're not even aware of how the uh, standards are diminished. Um, 
is there a preliminary uh, look at this to say that you know the the standard of your home-based employer is the standard that will be applied to you? Well, that's that's the assumption that everyone's making, um, but that's actually not the case. So um, you have to most employment standards and occupational health and safety laws are based on the physical location of the worker. Um, when, when we're talking about long-term remote work, you know, I mean, nobody's going to say, you know, if you go to Alberta for, you know, a couple of days for a conference, you know, they're not going to say, okay, your Alberta Employment Standards is going to take jurisdiction or, or Alberta Health and Safety is going to take jurisdiction. But if you're in Alberta, you know, nine months out of the year, that's a different scenario. Um, and the, the one of the big things that we see um, in the employment context is how that impacts your employment contracts. Yeah. Um, because termination clauses um, have to comply with employment standards laws. And if they don't, there are very serious consequences from a legal perspective. So you have somebody who's got a BC contract, it's beautifully drafted, works great here. All of a sudden, you, know, you let them move to Ontario, um, which has kind of a different regime for termination clauses and, and requirements. It's going to be invalid, and it's not going to work. And you're, mm-hmm. so you're going to have a, a quite a surprising bill, frankly, if you end up terminating that employee while they're still in Ontario. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And and I, I would imagine too, it also uh, there were some compensation implications in that as well, right? There's different tax. Yep. arrangements in particular jurisdictions um, and it brings to mind you know the I, I think it's Facebook that basically said to its employees yeah you can work uh, you can work anywhere you wish with us but if you work in a cheaper you know a more affordable community than here in Silicon Valley we're we're going to change your pay right um, you know not asking you for a legal opinion on whether Facebook's breaking something here, but I mean, it, it, are we going to see a fair amount of this? You think? Well, I, I mean, I think those are all the kinds of issues that are going to come up. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think some employees are, are, you know, have the view, well, as long as I know I'm doing my work, then it doesn't matter where I work. Um, and I can see the appeal of that. Um, I can also see the employer side that says, well, no, it does make a big difference if, you know, you're on a three hour time difference or a 12 hour time difference or, yeah. Um, yeah. We can't just call you in if we need you for a meeting or an emergency or something like that. Um, and, and different jobs, of course, you know, are going to have different requirements. There's, you know, kind of um, uh, the sort of, tech, uh, sort of intellectual um, kind of knowledge-based jobs are going to be a little bit easier to be remote um, than than some other jobs where you know really need to be there in person. But um, yeah, it's yeah. all it's all stuff that's that's quite fun to kind of look at from an employment perspective. But it, it is a bit of a head scratcher. Well, and I mean, as as I think we've all concluded from our, our conversation, a lot of this has been rather theoretical and hypothetical, mm-hmm. and now it's real. Now it's yes. dawning us that it, it's real, right? So so there'll be some definition. But I want to thank you today. It's been so really illuminating. I mean, I'm I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by this, and I'm sure our our audiences as well around this dynamic and how it's uh, you know it's bound to shift considerably in the short time ahead as we we all get ourselves or most of us get ourselves back to something approaching uh, what we were doing in 2019. It's going to feel uh, almost a light year away from that by the time we do it. So anyway, Elizabeth, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth Reed is with Faskin Law from here in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. Thanks a lot for watching.